The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Elise Capron, and I'm excited to be co-hosting this special episode with Bello Christina, whom listeners will know from many great previous episodes. Bello, I'm so glad to have you back on the show today. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to have this conversation with Violet today and hear some really amazing stories about her life at Neverland with Michael. Me too. And on that note, today we are honored to be joined by Violet Gaetan Booker, previously known as Violet Silva, who was a key staff member at Michael Jackson's Neverland Valley Ranch from 1991 through 2005. Violet started at the ranch as a security officer, eventually becoming chief of fire and security, and finally oversaw staff and human resources for 12 different departments at Neverland, from fire security to groundskeeping, housekeeping, the amusement park, zoo, and much more. Violet also gave testimony in the 2005 trial in which Michael Jackson was found not guilty of all abuse allegations, and after she left Neverland, she went to work as an investigator for Robert Sanger, defense attorney for Michael Jackson alongside Tom Mesereau in 2005. She currently works for Pacific Coast Farming, a vineyard management and development company in San Luis Obispo, California, and she recently married her high school crush, which I find completely wonderful and adorable. (laughs) Violet, we're just so pleased to have you on. Also, on a personal note, I have to say that I'm very excited to have an all-female episode, which we don't get to do that often, and I'm really thrilled that we're all in California and didn't have to deal with 17 different time zones, (laughs) so I couldn't be happier to have you here today. Violet, we're so honored and pleased to have you join us to tell your story. Welcome to the MJ cast. How are you doing today? Wonderful and good morning. And I'm very honored to be here as well. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share things with you. We are really excited. And you were a very special Neverland employee because you really were there for so many years and have insights into a lot of really important moments in Michael Jackson's life and in the life and identity of Neverland. So let's take a few steps back, though, and go back to your early life. Um, at the MJ Cast, listeners will know that we really like to do, you know, career spanning um, interviews and get the full context of everything that led up to you working with MJ and after that as well. So can you take us back to the early years and let us know a bit about how you got into security work? Sure. Initially, I had entered the police academy, which is a part of the Allen Hancock Community College in Santa Maria. You can enter yourself not being sponsored by a department, which I did in 1989. It is a full course of police work to enter, which is called police officer standard training. So you receive your standard training there, and then you're hired by a department and you complete your advanced training, which is a year's worth of training with a field training officer and running through all of the different duties of a police officer. 
While I was waiting to be hired by a department, I was referred to Neverland. The director of the police academy at Allen Hancock said, hey, in the meantime, if you're looking for work, you know, we've been approached by Neverland to recommend employees there for their security department. It sounded interesting, and I didn't even have any idea that Michael lived there or what Neverland was. I had no clue at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I did go through the process. I contacted the person that was referred to me, went through the entire hiring process, which was quite rigorous, almost equal to being hired by a police department, having background checked and several interviews, that sort of thing. Eventually, I was hired and started working. My daughters were quite young at the time. As you know, having to juggle a career in childcare and school and that sort of thing, it was challenging for me. And I just found that the atmosphere at Neverland was so wonderful and suited me quite well because it wasn't just a concentration of one thing. Although, you know, police work is a wonderful career. I just seemed to fit in there and I, and I loved it. Also around that time, we can go way, way back. You know, the Rodney King trial had ended during that time and there was the riots, of course, which are a very horrible outcome with regards to what people felt about police officers. We also had a few incidents with police officers locally where I live. They weren't uh, looked at in the best way. Thinking of all the things, convenience for me, what the attitude and atmosphere was like toward law enforcement. I decided, you know, this is really nice. I like this. <laughs> I was using everything that I learned in the police academy, and it just worked out for me. Now, I have to ask, were you a Michael Jackson fan before starting at Neverland? <laughs> I liked his music, but I wasn't, I would say, we used to call them fanatics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, of course, I respected his music. I loved him. You know, I would listen to his music. I had a couple of his albums, but I wasn't an ardent fan, as to say, in that sense. Again, like I had said previously, I didn't even know that Neverland was in Los Olivos. I had no idea. And thinking back to the best outcomes of people who worked for us, especially in my department, it was almost better that you weren't so much a fan of the artist, more a fan of the human, because you could really get distracted by your work there. You had to be respectful of him as a, more as a person than the performer and the superstar that he was. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. That said, it still had to be a shock for you maybe to realize that you'd be working for Michael Jackson when you had been unaware about kind of what Neverland was. So how did that work out for you? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, the first month or so, Michael was not home. So I had the advantage of easing into the work and being at Neverland alone is overwhelming. So in a funny way, let's just forget about Michael. I mean, being at Neverland is mm -hmm. overwhelming enough and getting used to everything. And then when he did come home, you know, I was very much aware that this was his home and we should be available, but not hanging around and to be respectful. So I think that my relationship with working there for him happened slowly because my exposure was professional and it was daily while he was there, but it wasn't constant. Right. 
Violet, I'm curious, you know, what was that first meeting like when Michael was on the ranch for the first time? And can you recall what that experience was like meeting him for the first time? My first experience meeting him was, of course, I I was nervous, I'd have to say, but everything that I had learned in the police academy was so ingrained in me that I just kept my professional composure. I guess that's the easy way to say that. But there was one afternoon, Bello, if you know how the ranch is situated, and for fans who know how the ranch is situated, the lake is in front of the house. There's two big ponds or lakes, whatever you want to call them. And then there's a top road that goes along the, I guess it would be the west side of the property. And I was driving into work in my uh, my little station wagon and going to park where we were supposed to park. And there's a sandy beach with the patio deck area where it has a hard surface, right where it meets the lake. Of course, the music is going, and I happened to glance down and notice that Michael was down there with some guests. Suddenly, he just broke out in a dance. And you know how incredible that is. (laughs) And I remember saying out loud to myself, it wasn't an internal voice, oh my God, that's Michael Jackson. Amazing. So when he did show sides of himself that were, you know, what his fancy and his singing and dancing, that sort of thing. Of course, I was just blown away as everyone else. But that wasn't often. Uh, but that was my first time. It's sinking into my head like, oh, my God, you know, that's <laughs> it was very humbling, you know, and I just thought it was funny because here I am trying so hard to be professional. And, you know, I'm just like everybody else. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. It, it reminds me a little bit of um, a story one of the uh, the choreographers told on This Is It when she was telling the dancers, you need to know your moves because the minute Michael is on stage with you, you're going to forget it all. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> As much as you can prepare for it, it sounds like finally seeing him and making that connection. There were many times where, you know, I would be visiting at the ranch and you kind of, because it's such a beautiful property and you get to know the people that work there so well, it's not until like the fans show up and then you're reminded, oh, right, this is Michael Jackson's home. So I can see how there's kind of that disconnect until you see that happen did you have the opportunity to to kind of see that side of Michael on the ranch, that that performer in him? Or was he more like, this is the Michael at home? No, it was mostly the Michael at home. And to add another thing to that, I would say I was maybe 100 yards away from him. Even that distance, he still had that impact on me, wow. <laughs> which yeah. is really sensational. I had another opportunity where he actually called me into the house to help him with something. And this was after many years uh, working for him. And I think he may have already had prints. So I walked back to his room and stood at the door. The door was open, knocked on the door, and I could hear him singing somewhere in his room. I think he was in the back part where the closet areas are at. And I could hear him singing, When You Wish Upon a Star. I stood there and just thought, wow, I'm listening to this beautiful voice, which is Michael Jackson. Nobody knows. Nobody would believe it. And then as he was coming out, the voice got louder because he was approaching me. 
for some reason, I thought, well, he's going to stop singing at some point when he sees me standing in the doorway. But he continued to sing up until he walked right up to me and just continued to sing to me. I had nowhere to go. I, was, <laughs> I think I turned into a puddle at the time. I, I didn't know what to do. And I'm sure, and this is the thing about Michael, is he's so mischievous. I'm sure that he said, oh, I finally broke her down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got her finally. And I'm sure my face was just as red as could be. And I'm sure I had the biggest smile on my face, but it was very sweet. And I knew where he was coming from. And yes, he did get me. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, the, the fact that he was, I think, more self-aware than a lot of people give him credit for. And this is the perfect segue into one of the questions I just thought of, of um, pranks, that he loved to pull pranks on the people that worked there. And even sometimes to the fans at the gate, I've heard stories of where he would hide behind the fencing and pop out and scare them. In addition to this kind of Michael playing with you, um, did he pull pranks frequently? He did. It was different every time. It wasn't, you know, where he was trying to scare anyone. He just put you in these, I don't want to say uncomfortable positions, mm -hmm. but he would put you on the spot to see how you responded, how you reacted. Okay. And I don't think it was anything mean. I think that has to do with how well he knew you. And he was bringing out a human side of you which he wanted to see and wanted to know because you feel a little vulnerable or perhaps, you know, if your interpretation of it is you feel compromised, you know, how are you going to react? And, and usually you show your true self. Those were the kind of things that he did to me. One time he came into the office and he showed me a lighter and he said, I can't get this lighter to work. And it looked like a normal lighter. And I thought, well, you know, and I looked at it, kind of shook it, thought it had it was supposed to have that, you know, liquid butane in it. And I was like, huh. I was like, well, what are you trying to light? And I, I don't think he liked the question. He was like, well, just try it. And I said, well, maybe we can use something else, <laughs> you know, because I was trying to figure out, like, what do you need a lighter for? Right. Because I know he didn't smoke. And so I just thought, well, of course, me always thinking of let's do this safely. Right. And, you know, do you need a longer lighter or, you know, why are you using this lighter? If it's not working, let's just get something that works. And he's like, no, just try the lighter. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I tried the lighter and of course it shocked me. And <laughs> he could not stop laughing and I couldn't stop laughing. And I remember giving it back to him and said, for heaven's sakes, don't leave that in your pocket. Because all I could think about later was him accidentally doing something and then it would shock him, you know. But <laughs> Amazing. But things like that he would do. Really, you know, that weren't harmful. They weren't going to embarrass you or anything like that. But he certainly did have fun with that kind of thing. Yeah. You, you know, I think this is so fascinating, Violet, because, you know, a lot of us with the pranks and everything, I think the kind of common story we all think of is like, well, Michael was just young at heart and, and all the stuff, which he was, but yeah. 
I never really thought about it in terms of the way you're describing as like, you know, he was surrounded by so many people all the time, many people who were always, you know, in a lot of cases trying to get things from him and, and all this and which maybe were not the most authentic relationships in some cases. And so I never thought about the pranks as kind of catching people off guard and maybe his way to really have these authentic connections with people that he didn't always get otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. He would, um, as everyone knows, he's very detail oriented. So he's very Mm -hmm. much aware of everything that was going on there. He was very spontaneous as well. And we had to respond to that in a good way. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, something would happen and we would just (laughs) need to be ready. Or sometimes he would call and say, I have a guest coming in. And we'd say, okay, and he'd give us the information and he'd give us an ETA. And one time he, he did call and said, I have a friend. This was the most memorable one to me where he just really got me again. Mishu and Dennis. And I said, all right, wrote it down, sent the information down to the gate. And he was calling me every half hour. Are they here yet? Are they here yet? And I thought, no. They're not here. We'll call you when they get here. As soon as they get through the gate, we'll give you a call. He continued to call every half hour to see if they were there, even though he gave us a later ETA. He knew what time they were arriving. So they did arrive. And I called him and said, Mr. Jackson, your guests have arrived. And the limo pulls up. Normally, this was a a very typical thing at Neverland was when guests arrive, they bring certain animals out to the front of the house. We had elephants, we had ponies, we had parakeets, we had primates, whatever was available or ready to go. They would bring the animals out. It was fun. And the whole staff would line up at the front of the house, you know, the housekeeping staff, the security staff and the chefs. Gail, who was the head of the house at the time, she and I would normally go out to the limousine greet the guests, you know, open the door, say welcome to Neverland, that sort of thing. I was surprised because Michael normally would wait for his guests in the house, but he came out, he came running out and was very close to the limo and pointed at me and said, open the door, open the door. So I opened the door. I met a man, his name was Dennis. He had, you know, cowboy hat on and somewhat of an accident. I don't don't remember what kind of accident it was. Welcome to Neverland. And he stepped out and went and said hello to Michael. And I expected the other guest. And I asked, is Mishu with you? And he said, oh, yeah, he's inside there. So at that time, I figured out Mishu was a man or a boy. I wasn't sure. I didn't see anyone in there or on the seat. So I put my head in and I heard a voice that said, hello, I'm over here. And it actually was the smallest man in the world <laughs> recorded by, what is the book that records the, the, oh, the, Guinness. <laughs> the Guinness World Book of Records? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he was so small and he was wearing a complete suit with shoes and a tie and a button down shirt. And he came walking toward me and he was standing up in the limo. So that's how small he was. And he got to the door and couldn't quite figure out how to get out and I didn't know if I should pick him up or help him out I don't know what he did but he he got out shook my hand and I remember looking back at Michael and he was rolling over laughing at me 
and pointing at me <laughs> and laughing and laughing. He couldn't contain himself. He was laughing so hard because I had no idea who this person was. And I'm sure he was waiting to see how I was going to greet this person or what my, you know, if my face was going to give it away or something. And I looked at him and thought, oh, you brat. Like, I got me again. And of course, you know, he was very happy to see his friend, the actual smallest man in the world. And maybe I didn't need to know he was the smallest man in the world, but it certainly was a surprise. <laughs> I need to go look up Mishu now. I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there are pictures of Mishu and Michael together. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I have never seen those. I'll have to check those out. Oh my gosh. That is so interesting. Um, <laughs> so can you kind of, um, I'll take a little bit of a step back. Can you tell us a bit about what, your day-to-day at the ranch was like? And I realize that may have kind of evolved over time, but can you give us a sense of of how that may have worked? Sure. Well, the security department is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we have, I guess what we would call three different posts, one being at the front gate, which is very visible to anybody who visits Neverland because it's actually right there at the front gate. We have a security post at the house, and then we have a mobile security, which you know, drives through the property and off the property during the shift. The actual duties that we have vary throughout the day because obviously during the morning, things are getting opened up that were locked overnight. We have more duties in helping that the house staff, whatever they need, whether it's running something over to the guest units or helping with food deliveries. But we're a constant presence as far as being there and being around the house when you're um, assigned to the house. When you're at the gate, of course, your job is to let authorized people onto the property and checking them off. I'm not sure how this happened, but we have the switchboard was down there as well as far as answering the phone. So we got a lot of phone calls down there. And then, of course, we were the first face you would see of Neverland when we had vans arrive. So we were very much aware that we needed to be diplomatic, but firm when it got to be too much, that sort of thing. But we always tried to do it in a diplomatic way. And then the mobile patrol was just driving around and making sure everything was okay. And another part of our duties was making sure that the employees were safe and that would be, you know, working safely, you know, not working dangerously, We also did inspections because, you know, we are a business as well. We have regulations that we have to follow. We did things like that. And then we assisted a lot with the duties of events. Speaking of events and and entire groups coming to Neverland, how often did you have to prepare for an arrival by a whole group of people? I would say we had an event season. You know, not so much now, but we would have a rainy season from November through February. And earliest as March, we would begin to start having events. They could be weekly. Sometimes it would be twice a week. And then they would run through maybe Thanksgiving. And during that time after Thanksgiving, preparing for Michael to be home and his guests, just taking some time off. I mean, we would have maybe one or two events during December, 
But not being able to count on weather being what it is, you know, being too cold, we wouldn't schedule anything. I would say a good nine months out of the year, we would have events quite frequently. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And of course, as you mentioned, when Michael even wasn't there, so you're just constantly having to take care of this very large property for lots of people going in and out. (laughs) Right. And there was always something going on, either something being built or something being remodeled. And, you know, we'd have vendors that we needed for food deliveries and food delivery for the animals. And it was like a small city. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you have any favorite memories of particular groups who visited Neverland? The one for me was the Alzheimer's group. It wasn't a very big group, maybe 30. We conducted the event just as we would for any other group. Seeing these senior citizens, our elderly people, have a good time and just indulge in a day, I don't mean, you know, with the candy, you know, like overindulge, but just taking in all the beauty. I think they knew they were safe and they were with familiar people, perhaps not being confined into a space. You could see the relief on them. I think it meant a lot to them because maybe I didn't really get a chance to speak to any of them, but you could tell they were so relaxed. And they so enjoyed being out there and maybe just sitting on a bench and eating ice cream. And and who knows where they were at, you know, in their mind. Maybe it took them back to a wonderful time in their life. But the end result was still, they enjoyed it. No matter where they may have been mentally, they were there for that day. And that's what mattered. Incredible. And having seen so many groups come out, one of the things that comes up in the fan community frequently is the demand to open Neverland, either as a public space or a museum. But, you know, I'm aware that there are a lot of challenges and a lot of insurance liabilities. And most people would come there with good intentions, but not everyone did. And I'm sure that you have probably seen both sides of that, of, you know, what a healing experience that can be to visit but yet there's also a concern for security and people you know, not getting hurt or not vandalizing the property. So I'm curious, kind of what are your thoughts on having groups there, both when Michael was doing it and you know, for the future of that property? Would you like to see that return? That's a good question. I hadn't really thought about it. Of course, I would like to go back there one more time. <laughs> Being there is, like you said, it is very healing. I think that if it was done in the right manner, one of the things that Michael would do is he would auction a day off. Mm. Smaller groups, I think, would enjoy the day much better than a walkthrough paid situation. Absolutely. I think it would be very hard. I know what it took when we would have invited guests or an event there, 4,000 plus people. It was a lot of work. And I can't see that happening every day. The beauty of being there is the peacefulness. If you really want someone to have that experience of what Neverland is, it couldn't be a giant event where you open up the gates at 8 a.m. and sell tickets and let as many people go through. I think it is better a personal experience than a public experience. Absolutely. I would love to see it available to individuals that would really gain everything that that property has to offer. And, 
in peace and, and healing. And um, it would be great to see that happen. I've, you know, had staff share stories about, you know, folks coming through and at the end of the day, they didn't want to leave. So they started ripping up flowers or taking, you know, pieces from the buildings as, as souvenirs. And I think that's a side that that has to be taken into account, you know, moving forward of, you know, how are we making this hallowed space available in a way that respects the sacredness of it, but still honors Michael's intent of having it available for individuals to forget about their life um, and all of the struggles that they're going through and just come and enjoy that property and, mm-hmm. and be a kid again. Yep. I think that would work. That would be wonderful. Um, what's your favorite part of the ranch and why? There is a bench that faces the lower lake. There's a, also a little boat dock there where their boats or jet skis can dock into that place. There's a bench that's there. You can see the entire front part of the main house area. You know, it's surrounded by beautiful trees and the open grass area where they used to have horses. Michael didn't have his horses there, but when the property was built, that was the purpose for it, the corrals you know, the music playing. My favorite time was Sunday morning doing a crossword puzzle there when we didn't have guests (laughs) or when we had guests because it was kind of this this area that was down below. You couldn't really tell someone was sitting there. So it was a perfect spot to be observant and still take everything in. But when we didn't have guests, that's where I would be Sunday morning and sitting there doing crossword puzzle. Beautiful. And for the fans that, you know, trying to visualize it. So you're talking about, you know, you're facing the main entrance of the, of the main house and the lake is right in front. And then is that Mm -hmm. kind of where there's a beach and a little dock and then Michael's giving tree would then be off to the right with the bridge. The bridge would be to the, if I'm sitting on the bench and I'm facing the lake, the guest units would be to the right. The bridge would be behind me to the left. With the house behind you. Got it. Yeah. What a beautiful spot. Sure. Did he run the fountains frequently or were those only when like larger groups would be there? Uh, No, they would run most of the time. They were on a timer because to maintain the water also, they needed to aerate. That was one of the reasons why, you know, they would run the fountains. Beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, it, it really was. And they had um, swans in there. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't, the swans are interesting because they look so beautiful out on the water and graceful that they would hide in the bushes and then come out after unsuspectingly. <laughs> 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 all of a sudden you'd have this swan coming after you with its wingspan wide open, which was <laughs> kind of scary. There were so many things there to be on your toes about other than the fans or someone trespassing like the swans, <laughs> the wild animals that were there that would come out at night and you'd meet them around the corner. You know, it was scary to meet a skunk or a raccoon right? Than, you know, coming across someone. Yeah, because I, I knew what to do with someone if I came across someone, but, you know, an animal, I never knew what to do. You don't get training on like the raccoon karate. No, no, exactly. And they're so unpredictable, so I can't talk to them. (laughs) You were running so many different elements of the property. Did you, just thinking about you kind of having these little occasional calm moments, did you get some downtime where you could kind of just walk around or was there just so many balls in the air all the time when you were on duty? 
Definitely there were times when I say there wasn't anything going on because Michael was on tour, so we knew he wasn't going to be home because he was touring. During the week, it was busy because we had to maintain the property. The weekends are quiet, so I would say, yeah, we had some pretty quiet times, especially, you know, if we were working a evening shift, two o'clock in the morning, there's nothing going on, you know, <laughs> other than, you know, raccoons jumping out of trees. Um, <laughs> There was definitely some downtime, but, you know, that didn't mean that we could just relax because, you know, anything could happen. We had to be ready for anything. Right. You know, it could have happened at two o'clock in the morning or it could happen at 11. So we just never knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of that exact point, how concerned were you all and also how concerned was Michael with intruders coming onto the property? Every moment of the day. Yeah, every moment of the day. I mean, we, I would say weekends, obviously, you know, people are, you know, more prone to be available on the weekend. But really, it didn't matter. I mean, we had people there all the time that would come to visit. Honestly, it was something that we were always concerned about. And we'd go for long stretches with not having anyone. You could almost feel when something was about to happen. You know, sure enough, somebody would try to get on the property and they did. My sort of philosophy on that was, as you know, if you've been there, it's very easy to get over the fencing. There's nothing to it. Right. But then it takes about another half mile to get to the main part of the property. We were very good about securing the outside. And we knew when somebody was trying to get on. And I'd say, you know, let them walk that half mile of hill and uh, meeting up with cows and you know, whatever else is out there. And by the time they get to the main part of the property, we'll be waiting and they'll just be so tired that um, they won't be a big pot. <laughs> they'll be so happy that we pick them up. Uh, <laughs> it's just so tired, you know, and hot and sweaty that, uh, you know, it won't be a problem. That's amazing. <laughs> just wear, wear them out on all on their own and then you don't have to chase them very far. Right. Yeah. There's no point in chasing them, you know, <laughs> Because they could go anywhere, right? And so it's just like, let's just let them come to us and then that'll be okay. I think that's an impression for a lot of people that maybe haven't been out there, that they really don't understand the terrain and the environment, that it is literally in the middle of nowhere. You're bordering the Los Padres National Forest. Yes. And it's sagebrush. You know, there are big dips in the ground and not to mention rattlesnakes and mountain lions and the bears mm-hmm. and the raccoons and... And pigs, uh, wild boar. Pigs, yes. Yeah. Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah, herds of them. We, we would get a herd of like 20, 25, you know, a herd of wild, wild pigs. They're very dangerous. They're very dangerous. And they've done so much damage to um, parts of the property where there's just big ruts and holes and they'll rip up the grass. And yep. um, yeah, I think that the fans don't quite understand. It's it's really not Disneyland. You can't just kind of waltz in there. Another officer and I, we decided, well, I decided, I shouldn't say he decided because he just had to go along with me. I said, um, okay, meet me in Los Olivos at 11 p.m. We'll drive in together. We'll park down the road. 
we'll hike in and let's see how easy or how hard it is to get to the property in the main house. And I didn't tell the other officers that I was going to do this. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and we did it. It took a long time and we knew our way around there uh, because we were also trying to avoid being detected. It's not easy. We did get to the main house, but I only attribute that because we knew the property so well. Right. And uh, we knew where we could kind of duck and hide. But I was scared out of my mind the whole time. It's terrifying. The thing that I didn't realize until the first time I ever went out there at night was it is pitch black. You can't even. Completely. You can't see your feet on the ground in front of you. It's so dark. Um, yeah. So to be able to navigate that, kudos to you for na- navigating that. In the dark. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't we couldn't use a flashlight, you know, because we didn't <laughs> want to be seen. Uh, but yeah, and and I when I say scared out of my mind, it was because I already knew the things that were out there, right? And what are we going to do? And really, uh, do I need to tell someone else that we're doing this in case something happens to one of us? You know, I break my ankle and you know, <laughs> you know break our ankle. So it was a little risky, and I think it was just exciting too to do. I was really proud of our guys though, because they did a good job and, you know, I could see that. I think at some point I did call the front gate and I called them and said, Hey, I just want to let you guys know that we're on the property and, you know, don't hurt us. (laughs) 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 Don't hurt us. We're walking in this direction. And I did that for two reasons. One, because I, I did want to see, I thought it was really important to keep that in mind and, even though I knew it was hard and it might be scary to do that at night, it still could be done. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to discount it. And I also wanted our officers to know I did it, but maybe someone else can do it. Maybe with, with who's really motivated to do it can do it. It can be done even at night, you know, when you don't think you see someone, it, it can happen. And it was for their safety and, and everyone else's. So. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. We put some other measures in place to alert us as well. So that was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said to many fans, like, it, yes, it's easy to get over the fence, but you're really not going to enjoy the experience after that. And it's, <laughs> no. it's really not advised. And it's so much better to be, you know, invited on to the property, like be patient and, and, and wait for that day where it feels good to be on there and, and not <laughs> breaking multiple laws. And while you were there, did you, did you have any, you know, serious threats um, or, or any you know, kind of oddball stories of, of people getting onto the property? Well, we did have people. Yeah, we, we did. And we had one woman, um, her name was LaVon Jackson. Mm-hmm. She went by the name of Billie Jean. She did have some mental health issues. Unfortunately, for the entire time I was there, we had an active restraining order on her. She was quite intelligent. I wouldn't say she got on the property too far, but she was very persistent. And she did serve some jail time because of breaking the uh, restraining order, maybe 18 months. She had resources in the the way that she was paid a, a disability. It would just stack up in her account and she would be maybe in jail for 18 months. And then when she came out, she would go to Los Olivos and she'd rent a hotel and just hang out until she got sent back again. 
So that was one thing, you know, we all were always aware and the courts always made us aware when she was being released that we had an idea when to expect her. But, you know, we had everything from just the over the top ardent fan to people who would send things to Michael that were threatening that we needed to be aware of. And, you know, the whole reason why we were there. And we did have one person who became very disoriented because it was very hot. When she was running around out there, she got lost and she went into a completely other direction. Rather than starting at the front gate area, she went toward the Midland trailhead. Right. So it's a little distance from the front gate. She started there, got completely disoriented, dehydrated. We had to call the ambulance to bring her in. So somebody who has those kind of intentions but may not alert somebody else that, hey, this is where I'm going and this is what I'm going to try to do, could get lost out there, could get hurt, very easily dehydrated and become very ill. So it's important to have those things there in place, the security, that that level of security. Absolutely. So what was it like, you know, preparing for these events, um, whether that was, you know, like a high profile visit or, you know, Michael's friends and family, or if this was like an outside event, you know, what, what did that look like preparing for these events? The events that we'd have for, you know, maybe children coming in or a fundraiser of some sort was pretty straightforward. The day would, depending on how many people were invited, we would divide the group into two. So if we had a group of 10, then it was a pretty easy day. They would start by arriving, of course, at the house or at the amusement park area. And they would normally get a lunch. But first, they would go to the arcade. I don't know if the arcade is still set up the same way, but they would go to the arcade where there's tons of video games in there pinball machines, and they would go in there and play for about an hour. Once that happened, they would go to the eating area, which was near the amusement park and have a barbecue by our chefs. If we had two groups, then one group would go to the petting zoo, and then they would meet at the lunch area, and then they would switch after lunch. And then once that switch was done with, they would come back to the amusement park. They could either go to the amusement park and ride the rides, or they could go watch a movie. And the day would usually end maybe about 3 o'clock, 3.30, and uh, then that would be the day. And a lot of it would depend on where they were coming from as well. If they were coming from Los Angeles, you know, the event might end a little earlier. Mm. That was a typical event day. When we had events such as weddings or big birthday parties, it would take weeks of planning. (laughs) (laughs) And it would usually involve caterers, event staff that put up tents and other facilities like bathrooms. It would involve calling the the, uh, county fire department out Mm. to permit our event, which was a bit stressful at times. Having done events up there, I know it's, yes, getting the permits is impossible. One of the the advantages that we had, of course, was having a fire department there. Mm -hmm. And our fire staff was EMTs. And we did have 
former staff that went on to work for fire department agencies for counties or cities, some of them were paramedics. And because we have the capability of running a brush truck there, we have these people on staff. So we had lots of emergency staff on board. And we would call them back for these big events. And anytime I called anybody, oh, I'm there. Never had any problem getting enough people to come and work for me for these big, big events. So that was really helpful. And we could always divide the property up into sections so that there was always this constant security there and we wouldn't move them. So we wouldn't have that problem of opening a gap up. You know, people became familiar with what was going on and faces. That was really important is knowing who was supposed to be there. And we had ways of identifying people who were supposed to be invited. But it was a lot of work. It was fun, though. It was really a lot of fun. Speaking of of the amusement park and fun, did you go on the rides at any point? <laughs> oh, of course, because they had to be tested every once in a while. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what was your favorite? Uh, mine was the Wave Swinger. Uh, okay, <laughs> that was that was my favorite ride. Yeah, it was just fun, and you know, I have to hand it to Al. He had the best music for each ride, and that's what made it fun. I love the sea dragon too. I didn't care for the bumper cars too much. <laughs> it's just too much for my neck, uh, but it was fun. Yeah, it was all really great. One of the other wonderful amenities that not many guests took advantage of was the horse carriage. And I just thought it was beautiful. It was this uh, regular carriage that you would see in the Victorian era. It was black. It was lacquer. It had beautiful red leather tufted seating. It was horse-drawn, and it was fully decked out with footmen, horsemen, or whatever, the carriage driver. It was beautiful. And I think because it was not fast, not loud, not a bunch of loud music in it, you know, thumping music, it got overlooked. I thought it was the best way to see Neverland. Everything about it, it was such a sensory thing I, in a different kind of way, you know, between the horses, their clip-clopping, the smell of the leather inside of the coach, just seeing the lights twinkle at night in that slow manner of the horses trotting or walking through the property, hearing the voices of the carriage driver and the footman. It was so beautiful. I wish that more people would have gone on there because it was there and available for them all the time. It really was a wonderful thing. I wish I would have taken more than one or two rides on it now that I think back on it. That's incredible. And I don't think I've ever seen photos of that or, or heard stories. Yeah, me either. I, I can't imagine a better way to, to see the ranch than, than that. Yeah. Um, if not on horseback, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, the horses were Clydesdale horses. So they're big horses mm. to start with. Mm-hmm. And all the animals, they were so well taken care of. But the horses were, they had the white feet and the, then the darker, you know, hair. Their mane was braided. It had flowers in it. You know, they would braid the flowers into the mane. Their tails were braided. Odors, I guess, or smells can take me back to something I could place myself there right now and how it felt to go up and touch the horses and pet them and, you know, touch their, their muzzle 
smell all the oils from the leather because the reins were all leather and brass and it just everything about it was so beautiful to me and it just really was a wonderful thing that Michael provided and for bigger events like the weddings that guests did use it when the bride would get in and she would arrive on that carriage and then of course it would be even more decorated with more flowers but yeah that was my favorite what a beautiful memory I have to ask, I don't know if you're like a county fair person, but if you've been able to visit Michael's swing ride that goes up and down California at the county fairs, and I know Big Al is at a lot of those fairs as well. <laughs> have you ever gotten to to see that one that's been traveling around? I don't know if it was that one, but I, I have gone to the Paso. Uh, it's a mid-state fair. And they have a ride that is similar. I don't think it's the same ride. It does make me smile when I see that or the sea dragon. I think about, you know, hearing kids yell when they get up there and remember seeing from, you know, the ground when this ride goes up the wave swinger because it does go up, you know, seeing people swing their feet and throwing their arms out like they're flying because that's what I do. It's so fun. Now we've kind of been talking about security, but also hosting events. So Neverland was this place where, in a very unique way, I think security and hospitality merged. Mm -hmm. So you have, I think, a special insight into what it meant to balance security with hospitality. Can you speak to that a bit and how that kind of informed how you worked at the ranch? Sure. So being very diplomatic, being accommodating, being very gracious, that sort of thing. We were also part of the community. We were in the community of Los Olivos, Solvang, that little hamlet there of all those towns in the San Inez Valley. So we were representatives of Michael, you know. I think when people think of Michael Jackson's security, they may think of the typical bodyguard sort of person. And even that connotation kind of puts something in someone's head. I would like to think that what Michael had was more of a executive protection. It was very specialized. And what we did on the property was very different from Michael's security travel team. Nothing more or better, but just very, very different. We also had the responsibility of keeping our employees safe. California has a law, much like the rest of the states do, that is called a safety program or an injury, illness, and protection program, which is what I do now. And you are required to fulfill certain elements to keep workers safe. And we did that as well. We also had to learn everything that (laughs) went on in the property because something may happen on a Saturday afternoon when no one is around or in the middle of the night. We had to be comfortable with that. I think I did everything there from making beds to helping with in the kitchen, leading an event, washing a limousine turning off irrigation valves because a line has busted, trying to figure out an electrical problem, you know, starting a generator when the power went out, responding to emergencies on and off the property, helping out wherever was needed. So 
you had to be ready to do whatever was needed. You couldn't just say, I just do security work. Um, if you did security work, you did everything. So that's how they meshed. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good description. And again, I think we touched earlier about being a fan of Michael. I think you had to be very open to, it, it's hard to, it's hard to describe because anyone who is in the field of law enforcement or the fire service, even in similar positions, you have to have a big ego, and I don't know why, <laughs> to do those kind of jobs. And I think maybe ego is not the right word. You just have to have a lot of confidence. You had to have the confidence to do it, to feel secure with your decision, which is different than you know, having an inflated ego. But you also had to have the ability to be humble and the humility to not be disturbed by someone asking you to make a bed or help clean the bathroom. All of a sudden, we had new guests coming. Had to be very, very flexible in that regard. Do you think part of that was a lot of the staff that worked there had a genuine care and concern for Michael, that he wasn't just their employer? Do you feel that that was part of the kind of all hands on deck, doesn't really matter what your job title is. If something needs to get done, we all pitch in. Is that, do you think any of that is tied back to, you know, really caring about Michael as a person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You couldn't work there if you didn't have that attitude. Mm -hmm. We were very, everyone, not just security. And when I think of the actual people who were doing the security work day to day, the responsibility, the tasks of locking things up, responding to alarms, doing emergency medical calls, putting out little fires, that sort of thing, authorizing people to come in. The reality is that everyone who worked there was security, not just people who are wearing the security uniform. Mm. They were all trained. We trained everyone to be very aware. We did things as far as, okay, this is what we do when we think we have an intruder or we have a threat of some kind. We get the house locked down. And if you are working in the house and you get locked out, well, you get locked out until this incident <laughs> is over. <laughs> Everyone knew how to react. Everybody was on board with that. So that, that is a very fair thing to say is that, you know, I may have had 20 officers, but we had 60 other employees who were our eyes and ears to help us because the place is so big, you know. It sounds like that was really important to Michael as well, because I've, I've uh, heard this really great story told several times that a squirrel was unfortunately hit on the property with by a vehicle. And Michael either found it himself or heard about it. And the story I was told was he gathered all of the staff on the ranch to kind of circle around this poor squirrel. And he said, like, this can't happen again you know, we have to be respectful of this, of, you know, the other creatures that live here and, you know, please be careful and, and please show concern. So I wonder if that's kind of, you know, it, it was a two-way feeling of respect and concern, both for Michael and the ranch. And I sense it from everyone that I've encountered that has ever worked at the ranch, that there is just this genuine concern and love and respect for it. Yeah, I think Michael would, I think there's a, a, a kind of two funny other little things that happened. So Michael would actually move tarantulas off the road. I've heard I, this. 
<laughs> he had actually moved tarantulas off the road. We had a guest come in one night, and when he arrived, he arrived in his personal vehicle, and I don't know that he was a guest. We would say like a working guest. He came into the office, and he said, Violet, I hit a skunk. And I thought, oh, great. Where is it at? He told us where it's at. The other officer I was with, his name was Curtis. I said, well, okay, Curtis, let's go find the skunk. We went out there. I had a shovel with me, and I thought, I don't want Michael to see this because it's going to upset him. And, you know, the smell and just the whole bit. Skunks would spray all the time, but if it was because he was run over, then that's a different thing, right? Yeah. And, of course, we didn't want to get this person in trouble or have Michael be upset with him. So we go out there. It's night. It's dark. We're looking for this skunk. And we pull up and we see it. And I thought, okay, there it is. And it was on the ground. And yes, it was dead. Or it looked dead. And, oh, no. <laughs> and I get the shovel. And Curtis stays in the truck, has the lights shining on it. And I walk up to it. And suddenly it starts to move. Oh. And I thought, no way. And I, I dropped the <laughs> shovel and ran. I just ran. I don't know how far I ran, but I ran past the truck and just kept running until I thought it was a safe distance. And I don't know if it was just this muscle twitch or something, or maybe I thought I saw it, but I never ran so fast in my whole life. Finally, I think Curtis backed the truck up and we decided, is this thing dead? And we thought, okay, guys, it's really dead. But it took us the longest time to do it because I couldn't stop laughing. Curtis was laughing as well. And we just couldn't stop laughing. We thought, okay, let's stop laughing. We have to get rid of this poor skunk. And we did. We, we uh, you know, gave it a, a respectful resting place. But see, those are the kind of stories that I have said. You could write a whole book about funny things that happened or just, you know, nice things that happened at Neverland. It had nothing to do with Michael. They only one thing to yeah. do with him. But because of him, you know, because he created such a unique space for people to work, for people to visit, it can only happen there. You were probably fortunate that Michael was not observing this adventure because I, <laughs> I, I, years ago, I met one of the family that's been there for many, many years and helped out in the zoo and really kind of spent most of his childhood as his family worked on the ranch. And he said, one day there was a large spider inside the main house. So Michael called him and said, you know, please come remove this spider. And he kept saying to this gentleman, like, don't kill it. Please don't kill mm -hmm. it. And he said, I'm not going to kill it carried the spider to the nearest tree and turned around and there was Michael standing inside the main house watching him <laughs> through the window oh to make sure. <laughs> yeah, we had a bear that was um, terrorizing the property for a while. And I don't mean he was, you know, hurting anyone. He was just getting right. all the trash cans and dumping them over, especially in the park, in the amusement park. And, you know, there was other evidence of him trying to get into places. So, and this was a time when Michael was actually on the property and I had just come back from doing a patrol and I saw him leaving in his car and I said, don't get out of your car. Don't go back to the zoo. There's a bear out there right now. I didn't finish my sentence and he took off. And, we <laughs> and where did he go? He went right to where the bear was. 
of course yeah of course yeah, so. <laughs> it's like well i can't do anything i can't secure your safety with that you know like okay you... <laughs> sounds about on brand yeah 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 <laughs> sounds very stress inducing. <laughs> you know hearing all these stories about what it took to kind of run this place and all the amazing, thank you for sharing all these really specific memories. They're incredible. But thinking about the whole staff it took to run this huge place, what were your interactions with the staff? Like, did you guys all really get along? I mean, you saw a lot of people come and go. Mm-hmm. How did that dynamic work? You know, it's just like a family. You love each other, but then there's times where you feel that what you need to do takes priority. What we learned is in order to get the job done, we had to respect other people's priorities. Maybe it didn't seem important to me, but it was important to them. And they had a job to do and they had to get it done the right way. And that developed. So when I started working there, I believe Michael had owned the property for maybe two to three years. So the idea of Neverland was young. And you can imagine any relationship when it's young and people are coming together and starting to work, it's a little stressful in the sense that you're trying to get along. You're trying to, to, you all have a common goal. And I don't say stressful in the means that there was any backbiting or hating or anything like that. It evolved as we matured as employees we matured as co-workers and got along. We began to understand each other. So Michael's ranch was being born. It was very young. As we got better at understanding what Michael wanted, we got better in, in doing our own job and working with each other. And a question that I was often asked was, oh, it must be impossible to work for Michael. You know, It must be so hard. He seems like such a perfectionist. And He is, but he's a perfectionist for his fans, you know, for his performance. It's forgiving. The amount of creativity that he had, I think if he had 10 Neverlands, he would be able to fill his creativity with that as well. When I think about how high he set the bar for us, it really was an honor to be a part of what he created. We were not a group of people that came from a background of being performers or being entertainers. We were kind of a ragtag group of people who had a lot of heart and believed in what he wanted to do. And so the opportunity to just continue to do better and better was good for us as well. And we took a lot of pride in Neverland. And so when people would start to bash it or you know, make fun of it, or we were very much invested in what Neverland was about. So it became not so much defending Neverland or defending Michael. It was, hey, we took it personal (laughs) because we worked really hard and we created Mm -hmm. something that I don't think was impossible, but it took a lot of heart to do. 
Well, and you were spending so much time there, too. I mean, I know in previous discussions, too, we talked about how sometimes you were there night shift and also sometimes even just sleeping there. I mean, this was practically your home, right? Right. Yeah, it was our home. And our holidays were there, Christmas, Thanksgiving. You know, I made time to spend with my family during the holidays. Of course, you know, he wanted us to have our time with our family. I also look forward to coming to work and being with my fellow coworkers there, whether it was housekeeping or people working in irrigation or the mechanics or the painters or the landscapers or the amusement park people, they were family as well. And I look forward to being with them. I would imagine it was probably additionally hurtful and, and disappointing when there were some staff that were at the ranch that did not have Michael's best interests and, and didn't respect the property. From the majority of individuals I've met, it seems like there was a really strong bond. And for those individuals that loved it there and respected it, they've stayed and they've stayed in contact with each other. But unfortunately, there were some individuals that didn't respect that. And I can only imagine how upsetting that must have been for you to have this kind of, you know, family environment amongst your colleagues and have some individuals damage that. It was disappointing, but I think that the reason why they couldn't continue to be there is they were going against the grain. Not necessarily, they were wanting something more that was not appropriate, whether they wanted some sort of special attention from Michael, some special treatment. That was their disappointment, and that's why they eventually had to leave, whether it was because they were terminated or they left on their own. You know, certainly some other people had other plans, like people from my department. They were looking for lifelong careers, either in law enforcement or the fire service. That's a good reason to leave. (laughs) But other people who complained or told stories, they had their agenda to begin with was not a genuine one. That's unfortunate. Thankfully, it sounds like that was the minority. Yep, I would say so. Have you continued some friendships you made while at Neverland since you guys really were very closely bonded (laughs) over this place? I think that I could pick up the phone right now. If I said, hey, I am stuck somewhere, I need help, that I could call anybody that I worked with in my department and they would help me. I still keep in touch with a lot of them simply because they have applied for jobs in the fire service or law enforcement. They need recommendations, they need letters of reference. And it's been such a joy to see them move up the ranks themselves into their jobs, becoming engineers, captains, battalion chiefs, that sort of thing for different agencies, become police officers specialized in their work. I've built friendships with people When David and I got married, one of my fire captains, Brian Salsi, was, he gave me away. He walked me up to David. We were both very emotional, and I'm getting a little emotional now. Um, Yeah, Brian um, was uh, just such a friend and um, continues to be a friend, very loyal to Michael. And um, we went through some, some... I don't want to say hard times, but just having to really dig down deep <laughs> to get through some things. 
he is that kind of person. And I'm happy to say that most of the people that I work with in my department were those kind of people. Other people that I know continue to stay to work there. Of course, I had great admiration for them who stuck it out to the very end. I've seen people shopping or something, suddenly they're there and I see them or I'm driving down the road. So yeah, I would say, yes, I do keep in touch and I do know some people are doing very well. That's very special. I love that. One thing we didn't touch on as much, which I just would love to ask you about before we move to our next topic is the Neverland within the Los Olivos community. You know, there are lots of other people who live in this area, right? It's not just a big theme park in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's a it's a neighborhood and a community and you guys had neighbors. So how how did that work? What were the relationships like? And was Neverland a place that was looked on favorably by the neighbors? Or how did you balance that? <laughs> so maybe, I, I imagine sometimes complicated relationship. Well, we had two schools that were very nearby. One was a Midland school, which was a boarding school. I believe they ran, it was more of a high school. So the students lived there and they became very acquainted with Michael because he would suddenly say one night, I'm going across the street and he'd go across the street and join a basketball game or sit and talk with these kids. It was not unusual for him to go over and do that. Or he would call us after being there and would say, all of the students are coming over. I want to have a party or something. (laughs) So we'd have to be ready for that. So that was a favorable relationship. We also had an elementary school across the street from us that was called the family school. Not too often, but enough times. Somebody would get injured or get sick or have some kind of reaction and they would call us and say, we have a student that's not feeling well, or they fell down. Can you come and check them out? Of course we would go and we, you know, do first aid or, you know, do whatever was needed. The other thing that Michael did in the community of Los Olivos and San Inez is we had a petting zoo. The person who ran the zoo would collect certain small animals And it could be reptiles, it could be turtles, birds, um, small goats. We had miniature goats, uh, the pony, and go to the schools and give kids an opportunity to interact with the animals and give a lesson. And he would go to the different schools and do that for them. And this was all paid for by Michael. He didn't ask for anything. He just thought it would be a nice thing to do, which it was. It was very educational. The schools loved it. So Violet, I find this topic of the relationship between Michael and the local schools really fascinating, especially in terms of giving us more insight into who Michael Jackson was as a member of the community. Can we dig in a bit deeper on that front? Do you have a few stories you can share? Sure. Yeah. So Along with donating the days for auction, which Michael would do for the schools as far as fundraising, he would also invite special needs classes into Neverland for the day in Santa Barbara County. So Santa Barbara County is pretty big. We have, you know, of course, Santa Barbara, Goleta, you know, all the surrounding San Inez Valley, uh, Lompoc and Santa Maria. So there are quite a few elementary schools that, you know, have special needs classes and um, these kids would enjoy the day also, just like any other event day. 
And um, one event day I remember particularly because my friend Barbara, who is a speech therapist, was a chaperone for one of these events. And the special needs kids came in and, and um, they enjoyed the day. And this was very unlike Michael because when we would have events and he was home, he would never come out. And he would observe, but he would never make his presence known. I, I think he knew that if he did come out, it would it would become all about him. And he really didn't want to do that. He just wanted the kids to stay focused on having fun and just enjoying the day and being carefree. Um, but this one particular event, the kids were about to leave and they were still walking around the house on the buses. They're going toward the bus. And he did happen to come out with Prince in Paris. And I, I don't remember <laughs> which which one it was, whether it was Prince or Paris, but Prince or Paris invited the class into the house. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. And Michael just kind of went right with it. You know, yes, everyone come in. And so that was really special. I mean, the kids were just so excited. Um, I think the teachers were more excited than anything else. Um, <laughs> I think the, the, the nice thing about it was it was a small class, maybe about a dozen students plus the chaperones. Uh, and they came in and, and Prince and Paris were just such good little hosts. They gave him a tour throughout the whole house and were very engaging and, you know, um, answered questions. And I just thought that was so cute. And <laughs> that really it is. just goes to show you, you know, what a great parent Michael is because he, it, it wasn't a, 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 it was very impromptu sort of thing. And I don't think Michael expected either one of the kids to say, come in, you know, we want to show you our house. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was really nice. And I know my friend Barbara still talks about it to this day, like how, how gracious he was and even more so the children. And, you know, some of these children are, their disabilities are, you know, on the spectrum or one range to another. And the kids didn't seem to notice that at all. They just treated them as though they were, these, you know, you're our guests, come in, you know, this is where we have breakfast, this is our toy room, that sort of thing. And it was, it was just very nice. Very surprising right. for the staff though. We were, we were caught off guard, <laughs> we kind of guard a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> but, for sure. Kind of the opposite that you're used to. <laughs> right. But it was fun. It was a fun day and yeah. uh, it made it well, well worthwhile to do it, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, it's such a testament to to Michael's parenting skills that the way he raised those kids to, you know, we did an interview with the woman who was the uh, teacher for the kids when they were living in Bahrain. And just hearing about the way he instilled values in them and really made sure they were so polite to everyone and things like that. I mean, those kids did not have to turn out the way they did, but it was amazing. So I love hearing that they <laughs> welcomed yeah. everybody into the house and brought them through and were just amazing little hosts. Oh, they were. And, and, um, uh, you know, when they travel, you know, they, they travel with Michael wherever he went. And one particular night when we were expecting him to come home, he was very much involved with you know, the whole feeling of Neverland, you know, there was a feeling about it and a spirit. And when he decided to do something, whether it was add music or, you know, change the music or, you know, put a statue here or make another flower bed, it was very intentional, very, very much, he was very much hands on with 
how it looked and how it felt. He was about creating this synergy with, you know, music and the train whistle and the lights and the whole everything. Mm-hmm. And one evening um, after we had those really ornate gates installed, this was the first time that he was seeing it. So the gates opened and it was uh, synchronized with music. And so he wanted to get the whole experience himself mm-hmm. with, you know, what the guests were going to see. And it was at night and it had been a while since he'd been home. And, um, mm-hmm. we had a remote to open the gate and the kids were small. They were walking, but they were very young. And, uh, I think a little sleepy when they got home. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and so Michael was walking, he was walking very slow and, and Prince was walking behind him. And so was Paris. And what we did as the staff is normally we would greet him at the door, but, uh, this particular evening we decided to meet him on the road that goes up to the house because he was walking. And so we wanted to be able to have employees or staff greet him as he walked through up the road. And if there was something he had a question about, he could, you know, quickly point it out to someone and, and it would be taken care of. If, you know, like, I want this light moved or, you know, I want the music louder here, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So um, he walked by and we greeted each other and um, Prince was sort of walking a few paces behind him. And I said, good evening, Prince. It's so good to see you and have, have you home. And he was, he was a little sleepy and he didn't say anything. He just kind of walked past me <laughs> and and that was fine. You know, I didn't, you know, he, he was little, yeah. um, but Michael stopped and walked back and said, Prince, Violet said, good evening to you. And I, I was so, I, I don't know if I was embarrassed, but I was so humbled by that because, mm-hmm. you know, he just, he made it a point to have his children appreciate people who were there for him and, and being supportive of him, you know, and he was teaching them at a very early age. I was a little, <laughs> again, I was a little embarrassed, but I, I did appreciate the fact that, you know, they did know our names. Mm-hmm. They did come out when, you know, if there were employees, whether they were, you know, landscapers or, um, you know, people cutting trees or whatever it was, they were very good about saying hello, good morning, or good evening or good afternoon or whatever it was to whoever they walked by. They, they mm-hmm. were not neglectful that way. They were, they're very attentive. Very, very yeah. attentive. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Now, what about, you were talking about how Michael quite often would not even come out of the house when these groups would come through. Did though you see him getting involved in any like local community school events ever? Um, or were the, how often was he actually coming out of the house and engaging? I, I absolutely take your point and respect it that, that Michael didn't want to distract everyone with him being there. Um, but how much did you see him actually interacting with groups? Well, I mean, we did have a few events where he was, he was present, um, but I would say those were more private events with uh, friends, you know, that sort of fundraising sort of thing for big charities. Mm-hmm. Again, I think his point was, I want the kids to enjoy their day. I don't want to be a distraction. But, we, you know, the whole thing is he was involved in every aspect of the details of the day. 
So he was there in every way, which mm. is, you know, they would get these gift bags. You know, everything had Neverland on it. It looked a certain way. You know, the food that we served, again, you know, the music again, uh, which movies were played. He was very detail-oriented person mm. and, you know, had an eye for that sort of thing. And so, you know, whatever was going on or whatever the kids experienced that day was all Michael. It, mm. You know, we just manifested whatever it was he wanted. You know, we, we just, you know, served it. So um, he may not have been there, but he absolutely made it happen. And Violet, I also have to ask you, on our interview with Big Al, who I know, of course, you know, uh, he tells this really great 4th of July story. Can you give us your insights on um, on that event, which I, I know you know about, and Michael kind of coming out and engaging with the group who had come to Neverland? I'd love to hear your version of this. Oh, sure. Okay, so this is really hilarious. And Al told the story so well. He's a great storyteller and he did coordinate this outing um, and coordinate it with the fire department there. And we, we did have a really good relationship with a lot of the local fire departments. And I, I think that they may have even invited Michael to this event. As you know, there's, you know, there's a high fire incident in um, our area. So Lompoc is one of the towns that has their own fireworks show for the 4th of July. And Michael loves fireworks. He, he just, he loves the excitement of it. He loves watching them and just the ooing and the eyeing and everything. I think he even likes, you know, the next morning, the smell that's left over from fireworks. He really <laughs> gets excited by them. But uh, so Al coordinated this event and he more or less stayed with Michael uh, we were in uniform, so that would have just made it obvious. Like, why is this person being followed by these security people? <laughs> you know, who is this person? So I was with them, and we uh, got Michael into a van, and we we drove down there. And Lompoc is a small town. It's it's not a big town. I think the maximum you know population there is about fifty thousand. So you could have everybody in town in this football stadium which where it was held uh and it's a very small town event very hometown apple pie sort of thing and it, it's fun i've been to them because i used to live in lompoc and that you know it's a regular football stadium with you know bleachers on two sides football field in the center um there was a big stage in the center because they had performers like local bands and people singing and that sort of thing. Mm. The MC was there and part of the field was occupied with people who could bring blankets and picnic out on the grass and then watch the fireworks show once it got dark. So there was a whole show before the fireworks actually started. Mm -hmm. So we decided that along the track, there is a big gate that opens up into a parking lot so in staging where we were going to get out of the van and be able to get Michael out, we placed our van very close to this gate uh, with the intention of if we need to get him out of here, we just get him in the van and get him out. Funny enough, he was walking around with his, you know, I think he had like a, a headdress on and he 
not, I don't want to say a veil, but something that was covering his face. And I don't know how anyone didn't know it was him because <laughs> just the way he moves and his loafers, how could you not know it was him? Exactly. You know? but, <laughs> so it was Al and um, I think there were two of his cousins with him or maybe two or three of his cousins with him because they live in Lompoc as well. And they were with him and they were walking around and they had this area that was cordoned off toward one of the football goals. And um, you couldn't go past there. In front of that, that's where everyone was seated with their picnics and blankets. And it was very close to the show starting. And Michael was on the other side of where it was cordoned off, where you shouldn't be walking. And we were about 100 feet away, just sort of moving around with him. And we were watching, and it's funny because I don't know, I mean, Al doesn't mind me saying, he, he's big Al, so he's big, he's a big person, you're going to see him, and he was wearing, I'm pretty sure he was wearing his conductor outfit with, that are these, you know, the typical coveralls with the stripes on them and the mm -hmm. hat, and, you know, so he was, he was in uniform too, but not as obvious, I think he may have had a jacket on. You know, and then you have Michael walking around with his, his head draped and the kids, you know, kind of jumping around and doing their thing. And, <laughs> and you know, Michael being very observant. And I, I'm thinking all it's going to take is one person mm -hmm. to notice that it's him. <laughs> and the other thing is that it was very well known that his cousins lived in Lompoc and hung out with him. So I'm thinking one of their friends is going to see them and say, hey, what are you guys doing here? And, oh, look, it's Michael. And then it just would have erupted. You know, I don't know how, how many people are seated in this, you know, football stadium, but, mm -hmm. you know, uh, half, half the town maybe. And they were kind of walking around the fringes of where people were sitting on the grass. The other officer that was with me, uh, Marco, we, we just kept thinking, oh, please just don't, don't get noticed. The other, other thing about Michael that I don't know people know is he runs very fast. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> and so we had myself and the, Marco, the other security, and we had one guy in the van just ready to, you know, scoop him in. And we always laughed about this because I wouldn't be able to keep up with Michael if he was running, if someone was chasing him. I, I would. So I never really worried about if he would be able to get away because he was so fast. Uh, Marco <laughs> might be able to keep up with him, but, you know, we might even get trampled in this whole thing if, if you know, that was the case. But he knew that was our, our sort of our uh, routine is like, Look, you know where the van is at. If something happens, you just take off and shut the, someone will shut the door and then you just stay in there and we'll catch up later, right? They used to have races in the backyard with kids and he would give them this long head start. Uh, if, I don't know if you've been on Neverland, but the, the backyard is just, you know, it's, I don't know, like three acres or two acres of mm -hmm. lawn. And they would challenge him to these races and he'd say, okay, go ahead. And he'd give him this huge head start and then he would just blow him away. Oh my gosh. Uh, and he would, and, and of course he's doing this in his loafers, right? It's just hilarious. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of watching this whole thing with Al walking around. And Al is, it, Al is a very relaxed and composed person. 
but his eyes were darting everywhere. His head was like on a swivel. He was just looking everywhere. And I'm sure that at some point he was just thinking, what am I going to do if, you know, I'm sure he had Mm -hmm. the same things, you know, same thoughts in his head. So Michael kind of walked out of the, the safe area and he was approached by two police officers from Lompo police officers and, you know, typical police officers, you know, doing their job that day, keeping people safe. And they approached Michael and the, and the cousins and the gal, hands on their belts. And what are you doing over here? You're supposed to be over there behind that tape. And, you know, it's unsafe to be here. You need to get over there. And, and Michael was so respectful. He was getting ready to walk back over there and, you know, just, you know, do what he was supposed to do. Like, you know, I don't want to give these guys a hard time. And, and it was Al that said, well, wait a minute. This is, this is Michael Jackson. And, and they were, uh, they were briefed that he would be there. And, and the looks on their faces, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't duplicate, I couldn't duplicate the look on their face. It was hilarious. And Michael just very slowly like opened up his face cover and his hat and, and they must have jumped back like a foot because, you know, I don't know what they thought. Like, yeah, this guy's full <laughs> of crap or something. You know, this is a Michael Jackson. But then when they saw him, they were so apologetic and so nice. Oh, Where do you wow. want to sit? And so accommodating. And Michael was like, no, 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 I'll go back. I'll go back to where I was supposed to be sitting. Thank you so much. You know, <laughs> it was hilarious because you couldn't recreate the scene any better. I mean, Al in his conductor uniform, Michael in his guard, two little kids, <laughs> two police officers. Um, it, it was just really funny. And I couldn't stop laughing because the looks on everyone's faces were, were just priceless. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, so that was really funny to see it from the other side, being observant of this whole interaction with Michael and the police officers and Big Al that night. And he, he did end up staying for the whole event and enjoying himself but i thought at any moment uh no one else could do this is if he was found out he would have gotten up on the stage did a little performance and, <laughs> and everyone and everyone would have behaved and it would have gone nuts there and some little part of me was not hoping that that would happen but i i just knew he would have just said okay i'm gonna go with it i'll you know i'll do something yeah. Um, I'm here and I want to be here. I'm sure he would have thanked everybody for, you know, putting on a great show uh, because that's how he was. He, he was very much recognizing other people and their part in what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been pretty amazing to see a little performance, but <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I just think it's incredible to Michael we all know just wanted to have be able to live a little bit of a normal life so badly. And even though he was in this larger than life place at Neverland, it's amazing to hear the ways in which, you know, he tried not to create waves, like not to rock the boat and just, and do these like what are, in the scheme of things, kind of small, normal things that so many of us take for granted. And he just tried so hard to have that. And I think it's beautiful that 
in so many cases in this special community, maybe he got some of those little tiny moments here and there. I think that's wonderful. It makes my heart very happy. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I know we've talked about this where he could have arranged to go there and he could have said, hey, I'm Michael Jackson. I want special seating. You know, I want to sit here. I don't want you know, uh, 10 rows around me. I want to be by myself, but he didn't do that. Cause I know he would, it, that meant it would put other people out who were there to enjoy it as well. And that's right. what he wanted. He wanted to be amongst everyone and right. enjoy it the same way they did. So yeah, again, another example of how thoughtful and caring he is. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that he did was he provided fire protection for the community. You know, our area is notorious for wildfires, and we had a few of them during the time I worked there. That meant that all of the local stations, fire stations, were out on these calls fighting the fires and pretty much left the community open without service or a longer period of time for someone to respond from another station. Because we're talking about San Inez and it's a county service. Even if it was something like a medical call, our fire service would respond and essentially cover the area while the county areas were doing what they needed to do. So I think that the communities there acknowledge that Michael was of service, not there to intrude, leave a big footprint that he was there to do his part as a community person. Part of the community is to give something to the community as well. And I thought that was wonderful. Michael could go down to the little Los Olivos store there and walk in and buy an ice cream and walk out without any problem. Well, I think it's so interesting because any time that I've gone to Los Olivos and uh, Velo also uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how our friendship really formed in a lot of ways by making trips out to Neverland and Los Olivos. And it's what strikes me so powerfully is anytime we're out there, wherever you go in all those little towns, you hop around, you know, go to lavender farms or wine tastings or whatever, almost everyone you meet has some story <laughs> about Michael hopping around and the time yeah. they saw him and some, some really great, wonderful story. And it's pretty incredible for especially how famous he was, how he could in some small little ways, you know, still be part of this intimate community. Living there, your day to day becomes you have conversations about Michael Jackson that you don't have anywhere else. Like my plumber would come over to replace the garbage disposal, see a photograph or a piece of art on my wall that was Michael Jackson related. And then he'd start telling me these stories about the plumbing work he had done at the ranch, uh -huh. a property manager that periodically was the chef out there. Mm. I mean, you just you run into him on a daily basis. And one of my colleagues, when I was working at a nonprofit in Solvang, she worked at the YMCA in Santa Inez when it was still in the gym of the high school. This is before they actually had a location. And I had confessed to her that, you know, I'm a lifelong Michael Jackson fan. And she said, you know, he um, outfitted the YMCA with all of the exercise equipment. No one knows this, but the people involved because Michael didn't announce it publicly. Right. Mm -hmm. He essentially got the YMCA and Santa Inez off the ground by purchasing all of the exercise equipment for them. So 
I couldn't agree more, um, you know, having lived in that community that there is so much love and, and respect from the community. Uh, Chamberlain Ranch, which is right next to Neverland, has a great relationship with him. You know, Midland's cattle, they still use Neverland to this day to graze their cattle. And so I feel like, you know, this he was in such a great, healthy space in that community. And it, it makes me very sad that he couldn't stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that really was a sad thing. So Fred Chamberlain, now, do, have you met Fred Chamberlain? I have not met him. I've seen him several okay. times passing, but never met. He, <laughs> he is a character. His property, they share a fence. He would allow us to sneak Michael off the property. We shared a gate. Whenever there'd be a huge crowd out there, we could get Michael out for some reason. And we just didn't want to draw attention. We would just call Fred up and say, hey, we're, we're going to run Michael through. And he'd say, go ahead. Uh, or he'd go out and meet us at the gate, open it up and, and let us through. And, you know, we would be, you know, two miles down the road and you know, <laughs> we wouldn't have any problems. So he was great. And we actually put out a, a couple of brush fires on his property. He was out disking or something and hit a rock and started a small fire. Our fire department went out and put out the fire out there. So and. We responded to many a car accident out there, or people getting hurt or sick or something happening to them up on Figaro Mountain, actually hiking or something. I don't know if this was intentional or if they meant to land somewhere else, but uh, we responded to a call where someone who was skydiving landed into a tree oh, no. and had broke their leg. <laughs> So we went out and tried to help until the county fire, We well, we needed help, right? So, uh, but yeah, just things like that all the time. People ride their bikes out there, they'd fall off, they'd get hurt, you know, and, and people who were on the road knew we were there and we could help. So that that's how we were uh, always available to help. Beautiful thing. Yeah. So switching gears a bit, you know, we were just speaking a moment about Michael not being able to stay at the ranch ultimately, which is really sad. So can we get into the period of the allegations a bit and first talk about Michael as a person and what you saw? Because you were really there like on, you know, bookend of of both sets of allegations in the 90s and 2000s. How much did you see him during those periods and did he seem different to you what was the kind of change in atmosphere when all that started brewing well let me think about this obviously it was apparent to everyone during the trial the physical change that michael was going through and that was very difficult to see you could tell he was under tremendous stress doing his best to be brave and show up every day. I can't imagine what he was going through. So certainly, you know, without me having to explain it, it was very visible. When the first allegations came up, I did testify in the grand jury hearing down in Los Angeles. Again, that was another time that was, he was touring at that time also, he was home. He didn't have any children at that time. So to say whether how it changed him or if he was different, 
it's really hard to say because I think there were other things going on in his life that did change him, you know, to be a different person. And I don't think it was the accusations. I think it was because he became a father. He fell in love with Lisa Marie Presley. That was very genuine and very intimate, very personal. Did I see changes? Yes, I did. Absolutely. Were they bad? Not necessarily, because wonderful things happened for him. Not knowing what he was feeling internally or thinking, I couldn't say because I never talked to him about those things. I think my role was to be consistent in my service to him, to be unwavering. And at one point during the last trial, there was daily updates going on, lots of rumors about people leaving and, you know, how the news is, how they report things. I was described in one article as being a Michael Jackson loyalist. I thought, what do they mean by that? What are they trying to convey? What does that mean to anybody? What is so wrong with being loyal to someone? What is the problem? More so today, you don't have that sort of loyalty. There's not much to be loyal to because everything is just happening so fast from one thing to another. It's so transient, disposable. It's hard to describe that relationship with a person when there are not opportunities now to have that kind of relationship with someone, to feel that loyalty. So the changes that happened in Michael, if anything did happen, were organic to what was happening. He didn't cause these accusations. You know, he didn't choose to be persecuted. So whatever changes he did make in himself would have happened to anyone. More so because, you know, he was on the world stage. Everybody knew what was happening and could give their opinion about him. But he never stopped being generous. And I saw that he never stopped being generous with his friends, with his family, with us. You know, his creativity didn't diminish until after the last trial. You know, Michael gave so much and I think he was really lucky to have some longstanding staff, you guys really, the core team at Neverland, there was so much love there and for his vision and for Neverland itself and and all this wonderful stuff. In Michael's personal relationships, did he have a core group of friends who you felt were really there for him during this time? Often it seems like he was quite alone on that journey. Did you get to see him really like have people who were actually giving back to him and supporting him? I would say yes. What my experience was is if I saw someone come in, phone calls that he may have had, I don't know because I wasn't listening to these phone calls. I can't say enough and I'm not tuning my own horn here because I'm just one person in this whole thing. But I was so impressed and so proud of being with this group of people who just carried on their work as if nothing was going on. And that has stayed with me for the longest time. And I've never captured that again, working anywhere else. I did see, of course, his family was quite visible. They were there. 
One surprising visit that I had was with Donny Osmond. He arrived, and this was during the trial. Michael did come out and greet him personally. I could tell there was something more than greeting just a friend or a business partner of some kind. There was something very real about the way they hugged each other. You know, they hugged each other when they greeted each other. They went inside. Mr. Osmond was there for a good part of the day. He came by himself. And when he left, he walked out. It was in the evening. And Michael walked out with him, walked him to his car. And they stood there for a while and and had a conversation. Donnie gave him a one of those half hugs, pats, and and then they hugged for quite a while. And I thought I was so happy to see this very genuine display of friendship, of love and support for Michael. They were young kids growing up in the same industry at the same time. And so who else better to talk to than and understand his personality or his issues or his struggles? He wasn't there to ask for anything other than just to be there for him. And I thought that was just so incredible. You know, it was very touching to see. Yeah, that is beautiful. I do think it really is interesting, too, to look at the parallels in their careers and lives and their growing up and where they each ended up with Mm -hmm. it, I guess. So getting into a little bit more directly with some of your experiences around the times of each set of allegations. First of all, were you there for the police raid either in either set <laughs> in 1993 or uh, or in 2003? Yes. Okay. Did the staff know about anything in advance or were those complete surprises? Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. It was a complete shock. It felt like an assault. Because you can't stop it, you know, mm-hmm. and it was scary because they came in, they're armed, you know, you got all these cars and everything. You know, the person at the front gate couldn't communicate what was happening to us because he's basically told you can't touch the phone, you can't use the radio, can't do anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden, all these cars are coming in and helicopters and we're thinking, what's going on? And we don't have any reason to feel that this is going to happen, that we're going to be descended upon in this manner. I'm not sure what the reason was for that. I mean, we were not armed in any way. We weren't going to fight them. We weren't going to have this gunfight with them. Right. You know, and it was bursting into the house and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, of course, we have housekeepers there. We can't warn them of what's happening or what's about to happen. For an ordinary person, it was very alarming. It was scary. But once we realized what was happening, then a little more control was able to happen and settle things down. But it's still very disturbing and um, abrupt. More so the second one, before he was put on trial, I was actually at home and talking to Brian. And he said, something is going on here. There's a helicopter that's flying really low. And now there's a bunch of people here. So I figured out what was going on. I think I threw some clothes on and drove to work. Yeah, it was very tough, of course. There was more to it than just doing their job. It felt very personal. Mm -hmm. I think most of the fans would agree with you that, yeah, 
Yes. You know, we didn't feel like there was anything to hide. You can't just break the law yourselves in serving this warrant and searching. And I know Joe and I, Joe Marcus, who was the ranch manager at the time, did argue many aspects of the warrant and being able to go in certain places. And eventually it was, you know, something that they decided to do. But at least on record, we had protested that, no, you can't go in there because it's not on here. And uh, I think we had more than one warrant searched for the second time. I think there was two or three, but they weren't quite on the scale that the first one was. You know, they were saying things like, we know there's cameras up. We want the film, that the surveillance film, and we know that there's cameras up in those birdhouses. And my reply was, well, if you want to go up there and get one of those birdhouses and bring it down and show me the cameras, go ahead. You know, I'm not going to stop you from climbing a big oak tree and getting a camera. <laughs> go ahead. And that's what you want to do. Only for them to find that there was a stereo system speaker inside the birdhouse. Were there cameras? No, no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> no, that's yeah. what I'm saying is that right. they, they came with this idea of what they were going to find and it just wasn't there. Right. And they surprised us so efficiently and they came down so hard on us. I can't even tell you, maybe Al could tell you, or maybe Brad could tell you how many speakers there are in the trees with these little birdhouses. Right. There has to be hundreds of them. And, and yeah, there's no way that we could climb up these trees really fast <laughs> and take all these cameras out. It was ridiculous. <laughs> all this weird, lurid stuff they thought was happening. Right. It was almost better to let them just carry on the way that they needed to and not come up with anything. So after a while, it was like, they're going to do what they're going to do sort of thing. It's curious to me that you say that there seems to be this consistent perception across the staff at that time that there would be no, like, why are they doing this? There is nothing going on here that would warrant this kind of response. At any point, did you or the staff have concerns about children staying at the ranch? Did you ever see anything that concerned you or did the staff have those discussions? No, because certainly, you know, in any place you work, there's water cooler talk, I guess, you know, you could say that. But I never had anyone come directly to me and say, oh, this is really weird. I think these weird things are happening. You know, I'm nervous about it. I never had any concerns other than the kids kind of getting a little out of hand every once in a while. The other stuff people might have been concerned with or things that, that came up in trial. You have to remember there's more than one child. There's groups of kids, you know, like four or five kids together. Parents were there. It wasn't a free-for-all. You know, I actually saw a lot of times where Michael was exhausted from being with kids. <laughs> like, okay, I right. need some time to myself. So it wasn't as though he was having this sort of inappropriate relationship with them or unbalanced relationship. I mean, he was an adult and he did need to get away from them at some times. And I could think of a more polite way to say it, but anybody that has kids or takes care of kids, you need a moment. <laughs> Right. And as much as he, he loved having fun with them and being around them, they could not get enough of him. But 
you know, I'm sure he had his saturation point like any other adult and said, okay, I need to go do work. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, the Mm -hmm. kids would go off and do their thing until, you know, maybe Michael recharged or something and actually did some work or just, you know, took some time to himself. Yeah. And, and on that subject, and just because this is something that gets talked about in the media so much and you had unique insight into it, in your view, why did Michael, even if he did get exhausted from it, why did he spend so much time with children? And, and what is your take on his need for that? I know that what he would say a lot was that he missed part of his childhood, you know, because he was working at quite a young age. And he didn't get to experience some of the things that other kids do, like elementary school, playing soccer, piano lessons, ballet lessons, or he was touring. He was on the road. Um, You know, he was isolated to his family as companions. I think part of it would just had to do with having fun. I don't think it had anything to do with anything else than other just creating these memories that were there to be had anything that happened if you really think about it you wanted to go to the amusement park and have fun and go on the rides there was staff there all the time you wanted to go to the zoo there was staff there all the time if you wanted to go to the theater there was staff there If you were in the house, there was staff there. What was the reason that the staff was there? It was there for hospitality, and it was also there for safety. Even if there were no children there, Michael had to live a life always being under observation. He adapted to this, and so whatever fun he could have, whatever experience he could provide for his guests, was done with other people there. You know, it wasn't as though he was in his own 5,000 square foot house with no one else there. There was people there all the time. But he managed to have fun, you know, go for rides, ride around in golf carts, eat too much candy, you know, (laughs) too much popcorn, have popcorn fights in the theater, you know. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with that? Yeah. Well, and he's, he said frequently that children don't have an agenda. They're not trying to get to know him because they're trying to launch their own music or dance career. They're not looking at him as a financial investor. All they want to do is have fun. Um, yeah, they just want to have fun. And he could trust them up until a point, unfortunately, where I think, you know, personally, children were used by their parents to create an agenda. And, you know, Michael being the person that he was was too giving and too trusting. So I think for him, a lot of the time spent with children was probably the only time he could let some of that guard down and not worry about what are the consequences of this interaction. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I do have two questions about the trial itself and your statements. And so I've read your whole transcript, which, you know, any listeners definitely check it out. Um, it's just so fascinating to read. And you say time and time again, you saw 
nothing. But I do have two questions related to that. And um, this is just to kind of get this on record, things that were left a little bit going um, Going back to the the prosecution never asking like follow-up questions, like you were saying in the very beginning (laughs) that, you know, we were discussing earlier about like these questions were asked and then there wasn't a secondary line of questioning to clarify that question. So not to interject that, but. No, no, no. Thank you for interjecting that. It's very helpful. Yes, exactly. Exactly what Velo said. So the first is in regards to your role as a mother as opposed to your role mm-hmm. as a security person. And so in that case, you indicated that you would have had a concern as a mother about having your child stay at the ranch. Is that right? And you had answered, not concerned for them staying there, but perhaps some of the activity was beyond my comfort level. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Well, I have two daughters, Cynthia and Gina, very athletic girls, very high-spirited girls, who will try anything. (laughs) Get on a quad runner? Yes. Go up the hill? Yes. Get on a horse? Absolutely. Dive off a cliff into a pond? Yes. (laughs) Those were my daughters. They're very respectful girls, but they love to have fun. What I meant about that was I would not want anyone else to have that responsibility of watching (laughs) (laughs) having to say knock it off you know again my girls are very respectful very proud of them they were actually both in the life magazine photo shoot with Michael I don't know if you remember that yeah they were they were both in those when they were little girls by the time that was going on and that question was asked During that time period, my daughters were in high school. And again, my daughters are very physically gifted athletically and had a lot of confidence in what they could do, their physicality. What I meant by that was they're my children, they're my responsibility. And unless it's someone that I know very closely and understands my personal boundaries as a parent, how I get my daughters to understand, cooperate, comply. I couldn't give that to someone else, just a free for all sort of thing. Like, okay, go, you're there for a whole week on your own. I wouldn't do that if, if it was anywhere else, I wouldn't do that. Just because that's my comfort level as a mother. I wouldn't say watchful. I just felt that between my daughter's personality and what I was comfortable with, it wouldn't be something that I would do not because it was unsafe or they hadn't been there before. They certainly had spent a lot of time there. I guess the better answer is I would not feel comfortable with leaving my daughters for long periods of time without my supervision on their own. Mm -hmm. For no nefarious reasons that the prosecution is trying to insinuate. I'm recalling what you had mentioned earlier about you know, even Michael needing to take a break from these kids. I mean, I sure. you have a number of children who have been consuming probably very large amounts of sugar <laughs> and have been instructed that everything is free and nothing is off <laughs> limits. And when mm-hmm. you tell kids that are have been consuming large amounts of sugar all day long, that nothing's off limits, they're going to push it beyond. Um, and that's how you end up with broken arms and broken legs. and <laughs> Yeah, or scraped bodies or whatever. and. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for clarifying that statement. We just wanted to get that on record. And I will say, you know, after again, reading that transcript as well, it makes so much sense in the context of you talking in great detail about kids crashing golf carts all over <laughs> the property and that sort of thing. So um, really helpful. Thank you for explaining that. You're welcome. And I did have one other question I wanted to bring up regarding the trial, and that is one other statement that's left a little bit murky for some fans is the exact situation with the lock on Michael's quarters. That kind of gets left a little bit open-ended that it could be locked from the inside. Can you clarify that as well? Earlier, I had given you a little story about Michael calling me to his room and me standing there at the door and him singing to me and me turning into a puddle of mush. (laughs) At that time, the door was just a door with a lock on it. You know, simple lock. It closes, it locks. So... By the time the trial came around, and before that, there was a keypad to open the door up. This is how the door opened. There was also a chime that would chime when someone crossed a certain area, and it would chime inside of the room. I think Michael's bedroom area might be about 1,400, 1,600 square feet size of a, a house that's the size of my house 1400 square feet <laughs> twice as big as my so house <laughs> if uh, somebody was knocking on my door i i don't always hear it you know so that's why you have a doorbell right to let you know that somebody is there that's my guess that to let him know the other thing is that it also alerts michael there's someone out there that needs to come in no one ever asks well, who is that person? <laughs> is it a staff member? Is it one of his guests? Is it someone trying to choke him or kill him? Right, or take photos for tabloids. Take photos, right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many reasons to have that chime there. One, because the amount of the space there is, is huge, just for safety reasons, his safety. So the question was asked about this door and why this keypad was on there. And of course, you know, their suggestion was that it was there to keep staff from coming in. And this chime, which was nefarious, was there to alert him so he could stop these horrible activities, right? Uh, Well, no, and I just explained why that chime was there. When Prince was about 18 months old, he was in the room with Michael. Michael needed to come out to get something. I'm not sure what the reason was. He came out, the door closed behind him and locked Prince inside of the room by himself. Mm. He couldn't open the door. There was no key. No one had a key. For some reason, Michael's key was inside the room. Oh no! The housekeeping staff didn't have a key because the only person who could have a key was the head housekeeper and she wasn't there that day. Now the security gets called because Prince is on the other side of the door. And when we get there, a housekeeping staff and Michael are trying to talk Prince into opening the door for him. (laughs) And he couldn't do it. He just wasn't strong enough to pull the lever down and open the door. Michael's getting a bit frantic and, you know, Prince is getting a little bit frantic because he can hear his daddy on the other side of the door, but he can't open the door. And so what do we do? And we didn't want to kick the door down because 
not so much because of damaging the door, but we didn't know where Prince was standing because, you know, he was right on the other side. We could hear him. And if we hit the door, then, of course, he could get hurt. We didn't want to do that. Without giving too much away of the security there, we were able to enter through another door. But obviously, uh, childproofing was not something that we were very good at at the beginning and learned along the way. So <laughs> that's why that keypad was put in is because um, our cute little prince got stuck and locked inside the other side of the door. <laughs> and so we put that keypad in so that we could just put a code in or he could just put a code in and the door would open. So nothing, nothing nefarious huh. there. <laughs> got it. Going back to living with children, children managed to do things that they, <laughs> you know, you couldn't even imagine that they'd be able to get themselves into trouble like that. So, yeah. So that that's what that's what that story was about. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's great. Thank you again so so much. I do have two other questions that are not going to be as woven in as nicely to our narrative, but two I just really would like to address um, that may have kind of quick answers. So first of all, regarding the gate logs, there's a lot of talk of those, you know, in the trial. Were those returned back to Michael, or did the court keep them? Do you have any sense of that? Well, what happened was the day the warrant was served, we had officers in our security office. Mr. Sanger does a really good job of describing the inside of the office or walking me through when he's doing his cross-examination of me, having me describe the security office near the main house. Our gate logs for the past year, two years, three years, I think, were kept in the security office in a file cabinet. It was not locked. It was easily accessible, and they were in plain view. They had sheriff deputies in there for that search for about three hours looking through everything. When it was all said and done, when they left, I think they arrived maybe, it was about nine o'clock in the morning, and I remember it was it was a long day. It was about 10 hours or 12 hours. I'm not sure what it was. But once they left, I went into the office to sort of make an assessment or take an inventory of perhaps what was taken, what was collected. They had not given us a, um, a list of the inventory of things that had been taken yet. But the gate logs were there. And I thought, why did they not take these? It's so significant, you know. But they didn't. So I secured them. And at that time, Mr. Garagos was actually Michael's attorney. I had collected them. I conveyed that we had the gate logs and we would keep them. He wanted to take them. And I said, well, let me make copies first, because if you take them and something happens to them, then they're gone. We don't have anything, right? And I have no way of proving that they didn't take them. That was sort of my dilemma, right? Where were they at? I had custody of them. That was my responsibility. Where are they? Because I knew that was one of the things that they would immediately ask for. And I mean, Michael's attorney would ask for them. I was left with the copies. I believe they were given once Mr. Mesero and Mr. Singer took over then the gate logs were given to them. The original gate logs, I don't know what happened. Mr. Garagos may have them. 
I don't know what he did with them. If they're sitting in someone's trunk of the car, I have no idea where they're at. That's again, really helpful. Thank you so much for your transparency and with all of these tougher questions. It's no fun to talk about for <laughs> for any of us, but it's really, really helpful. My last question directly related to this is whether you were there for the nude photo session with the police. Yeah. Well, I wasn't in the room, but I was there when it happened. Yes. Sure. Okay. And that actually happened at the ranch? Yes. Wow. Is there anything you can share about that event? Uh I know it's a really dark and awful thing. Yeah, it was uh, it was very hard. And um, I think the only thing I can speak to about that is just feeling so horrible for him. You know, the humiliation. And again, it has to do with, not because I felt like they were doing their job and this was just you know they were proceeding accordingly I felt it was so personal you know what they were doing to him or how they were going about I shouldn't say doing it to him just how they were going about it it almost seemed like they were they just took pleasure in this it was a not a good day I think again that the the bulk of the fam community would agree with that, that so much of this didn't feel like they were just doing their job, that there was a personal vendetta that ultimately, you know, destroyed this man. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, on that happy note, gosh, I'm feeling, feeling a little emotional myself right now. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Thank you again for that. So can we talk about your ending at, at the ranch? You worked there through, of course, the trial and everything. When did you actually leave and why did you choose to leave in 2005? Well, I know you've had Carrie Anderson on your show. During the trial, things became very intense, you know, obviously. And I think the need for the type of security changed because there was a threat that Michael should be concerned about. You know, we talked a little bit about the difference and, and Carrie was very good. I listened to part of his podcast or the episode that he came on to describe the advanced work that needs to be done. We did not have weapons on the property we did carry certain, you would call them pepper spray, tasers. We didn't have anything because this was Michael's wish. We didn't carry any firearms. The way things were going, not to say that there was a difference or there was a disagreement, but it just became obvious that there was a need for something more, I don't want to say advanced because again, I don't know that Carrie could have stepped into my job and did my job with all the other things that I had to do with the hospitality and that sort of thing. And I certainly couldn't have stepped into his role. It just was very different. But it became more apparent toward the end that what was needed was more of Carrie's expertise in making Michael feel secure. And that's really what it came down to. 
I was able to solely concentrate on the safety of the employees, and I had other duties, which I was happy to take on. Once the trial ended, you know, I don't think it's any secret that there were some financial issues that Michael had and needed to be straightened out. Very understandable that where the money was going, (laughs) that sort of thing. There were periods where we were not getting paid. We understood why. But at the same time, it's, well, I have a house to pay. I have a family, you know. When people did start to leave, it was because they had tapped out their personal sacrifice or how far they could go with being able to make adjustments with not getting paid and that sort of thing. And Michael had left by that time. And my feeling was, this poor man is never going to come back. He can never live here again. It's never going to be the same. That created a lot of sadness for me. And I wondered what our purpose would be there other than to maintain the grounds and kind of keep it alive. I don't even say alive. I would say more like life support. (laughs) Michael injected a spirit into Neverland, and it was a living, breathing thing on its own. And without him, I couldn't see it being the place that it was. It was really hard on us, you know. You know, sure, it's nice to have a job, you know, make the money you're making, but when you're so attached to the purpose, if you just want a job, sure, okay. But for me, it meant more to me than that. It was a hard decision, but I also learned a lot during the trial how unfair things were, who fights the fight, for people who can't do it like Michael. He has the resources. There are other people that are in the same situation. So I was lucky just through a few conversations to be invited to work for Bob in this, where I work for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I am so curious about that. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing for him. You were an investigator. Yeah, so um, Bob is a criminal defense specialist, so he only handles criminal defense work. And, you know, that could be anything from, you know, misdemeanors to felonies. My job was to, you know, go out and reinvestigate the case once it was given to us by district attorney's office. Once they decided to file a charge against a client and we were hired, then my job was to go out and reinvestigate cases speak to witnesses, find new witnesses, make clarification in cases. And it's very obvious, as you say, and we brought up that sometimes during an interview from law enforcement, they will ask a question, leave it hanging to where they want it, but they don't continue to follow through. And that was my job is to make sure that all of the questions were asked. That's a whole other like set of stories right there, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, perhaps this is obvious, but can you share your thoughts on a few of the former co-workers you had at Neverland who have gone on to sell stories to tabloids? 
How does that feel to you? Well, I have a general feeling. Uh, you know, I've been asked, oh, you have such great stories and you speak well. You can help people be in that moment with you. And I, I know it's a silly thing, but when I was hired in June of 1991, I signed a confidentiality agreement that stated I would not profit from any of my experience at Neverland, whether that was through written statements or photography or video or audio or anything like that. And it's four pages. I read through it. I signed it. There's not a clause in there that says anything like, upon death, you can say whatever you want. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel very committed to that my daughters have even said mom you know you you just you know I of course I tell them things and I tell David my husband you know little things but they're so personal and there's there's such a treasure to me that I don't think I could put a price on it it wouldn't mean anything to me to sell something or earn anything from it people that have decided to sell their stories to tabloids I don't know what kind of hardship they may be facing to push them into that sort of decision, you know, or have their 15 minutes of popularity, glory, or attention. I don't know of anybody that has sold a story or written a book. I don't know how much money they've made off of it. I don't know. Maybe that's important too. Maybe it's not. I know some people feel like they need to continue defending Michael. I've heard that a couple of times, be able to tell a story about Michael, about how wonderful he is. And this is another thing to look at. During the trial, the defense did not put on a defense. They rested after the prosecution had called all of their witnesses. And I thought that was such a smart thing to do. I don't think Michael's legacy should be in continuing to defend him. His legacy should be continued by sharing good stories about him, listening to his music, forming new friendships such as you and Bello and Elise. That's what we should be doing. Could not have said that more eloquently and, <sighs> and more beautiful. Um, I know. Yeah, That's I think I Elise just... and I are both like here and sitting here in tears. Um, grateful for these stories. And I I have never heard anyone say that until today. It really shouldn't be about having to defend Michael forever. And this is why I love these conversations that, you know, will acknowledge the allegations and and that that's part of Michael's story. But there are so many other beautiful stories that haven't been told. Those are the ones I think should be highlighted and continue to be told. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Um, Violet, there is a question that we like to ask everybody at the end, but as Velo just said, I think you have already answered it perfectly, which is how (laughs) should Michael be remembered? One of the things that I finally allowed myself to acknowledge personally was when I heard that Michael had passed away, of course, it was, you know, astonishing, you know, incredible to believe, went through the process, everybody else that the world did, you know, and then after it wore off, you know, the stories, there was 
you know, something that I went through, and I guess it, it's easily, you can say it is grief. And I couldn't understand why it was so hard. And um, such a deep sort of wound for me. And I believe that part of it was because I finally acknowledged the loss that I was feeling. Because you think, well, he was my boss, that sort of thing. But I finally had to admit myself to myself that Michael was my friend. And I missed him. And I would never see him again. And I think once I realized that, um, <laughs> my grief became even worse <laughs> because, uh, you know, when you realize you lose a friend, then you, when you can identify the loss or the pain um, and you can get to the root of it, then um, it, it does become harder. But it was also, um, it was a transformation for me to understand what loss is and what friendship is and what love is. And that is Michael's message, really. So, um, you know, I have such gratitude for that, you know, through the loss that he gave that to me. And it's the most wonderful thing ever. You know, when my father passed away, it was something that I understood already and made it a little easier if that can happen. But I was able to look at the grief in a different way. Absolutely. With more love than confusion or pain. And I think that's what he's given everyone. You know, he's that that's, that's always been his message. It's the one of the biggest gifts he's given us, along with the music, is to to remind everybody that, you know, it's it's all about the love and how much of that we put back out. Um, I've said often, like you know, grief and gratitude are such odd bedfellows <laughs> because you can't have mm -hmm. one without the other. And I think the, sure. the more grateful that we are for those those people in our lives and those experiences, the more we feel that grief deeply. Um, so I think that's just a, a testament to your connection with Michael and, and how much you cared for this man, that um, his, his passing impacted you that deeply. And thank you for sharing that with us. It, it's probably one of the most favorite lines of Michael's songs. There's a choice you're making. You're saving your own life. And I think those words mean so much because, you know, Everything that you do, you make so many choices during the day and how we choose to be with one another and how we treat one another every day is so important. And, you know, we should always choose to be or try to be when we can. And when we can't is ask for help, you know, right. and be gracious in whatever we try to do. Beautiful. Yeah. <sighs> Violet, this has been so special. Thank you so much for all the time you have generously given to us and for sharing these amazing stories. You know, of course, you and I have been kind of off and on corresponding for a few years now. And 
And I am just so glad this came together now. It was the time it was meant to happen. And, you know, again, your memories and your stories and your willingness to just go into everything we've wanted to tackle is so deeply appreciated. Thank you so, so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Of course. Um, Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, (laughs) on that note, trying to collect myself here. Um, This has just been incredible. Um, Let's, I want to wrap up a little bit here and uh, just go into how people can find you. Um, Violet, if if anybody does want to reach out, are listeners able to contact you? Do you want to be found and how can they do that if so? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, on social media, I am only on Facebook and it is you know, my name, my real name, Violet Gaetan Booker. And um, if they want to DM me through Facebook, I'm fine with that. Great, great. And Velo, tell us where people can find you. Still just on Twitter at Velo Christina. Haven't been on much lately, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get back into it very soon. Absolutely. And um, as far as the MJ cast, of course, we're on every social media platform at the MJ cast. Um, I also do want to mention that, you know, if you have enjoyed Violet's stories, which of course you have, these are incredible. If you do want to hear more about kind of the other sides of security and protection in Michael Jackson's world, um, there is, of course, the Carrie Anderson episode, which was one of our very first, it was gosh, episode five, I think, one of our very first specials in the early days of the MJ cast. We've also talked with Bill Whitfield. Um, You also might want to check out Big Al Scanlon. You've been such an important, incredible part of this. We cannot thank you more. If we'd love to have you back sometime, if you ever want to return um, and get into more, more great stories and just thank you again from the bottom of our hearts. And we're sending all of our love to you guys, our listeners, and I will say stay bad. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you.